0: The Future of Cities is presented by Katera. Welcome to The Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we do a deep dive into subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, you'll hear the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we are excited to share our interview with Clark Manis. Clark is CEO of Heller Manus Architects, and he previously served as the president of the American Institute of Architects. In this interview, Clark shares with us what a megacity looks like and how building materials have evolved throughout the years. He also gives some ideas about how we can plan long term for a city using new technologies. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to the Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you share your full name and title? Clark Manus. I am CEO of right. and design principal for Heller Manus Architects offices in San Francisco. 87th president of the American Institute of Architect, an organization that was founded in 1857. And my quote night job is I am a planning commissioner for the city of Oakland, California.
1: Awesome. I love it. As the Oakland resident here at the mission, uh, super exciting talk. So <laughs> I'm really excited to talk to you about a few different things, obviously with your background as an architect, as a president of AIA, and then obviously now as you know, doing the night job as, as a planning commissioner for Oakland, you've seen it from a bunch of different areas. That is correct.
0: I actually sort of see in the course of my career, not necessarily anything that I anticipated, sort of three overlapping spheres, practice the profession and the community. And those are three roles that I can say that I have been sort of drawn to and focused on. And I feel that they have done a good job in terms of complementing each other and providing me insight on a whole range of issues.
1: Awesome. And so, how would you how would you kind of describe yourself and your relationship, your personal relationship with cities? I
0: am a uh, dyed in the Wall urbanist. I really have always been a believer in cities. I have, I would say, overwhelmingly, from a child to an adult, always lived in and around cities. Grew up on the East Coast in New York and Philadelphia for. Probably 30 years of my life and been on the West Coast in San Francisco and Oakland, practicing probably overwhelmingly in San Francisco and living in Oakland, but now being able to contribute to my community's planning commissioner. So for me, cities have always been the basis for what really is the way that you build creativity in the challenge these days is really a lot about the jobs and housing balance and equity and sustainability that really are driven by what happens in cities.
1: Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's something that I think is really important to look at the future of cities, because I think that a lot of times we look at this stuff as folks who are not kind of thinking about like what does a megacity look like what do what does it look like as these things get bigger and bigger and i think that that's something that i was really excited to talk to you about and you know what what would you say makes a city great
0: the one thing that i think probably is an important sort of footnote to this is that you know the bay area is relatively small in the world of global cities you know plus or minus 7 million Cities around the world that are, you know, in excess of 20 million. So, in my mind, the regional context in the Bay Area is probably. What the evolving characteristic is between San Francisco and Oakland and San Jose and the areas around it—it's a sort of urban and ex-urban sort of characteristics. But, but in my mind, I think one of the things that makes cities really exciting is the—I would say—the creativity, the energy, the aggregation of the human population. You know, in terms of being able to sort of interact with more people from various places in, in the world or in lo- life or in what they're doing. So there's an energy that I think that cities bring that you don't necessarily see in sort of rural and suburban communities, because the, there's much greater sort of uh, separation between those those places where people live and work.
1: I totally agree. And I think that there's a lot of lessons that we can take from each other, from the huge cities and from the smaller cities and how we grow those things. And it's something that obviously you've seen, you know, working in the Bay Area, but also as president of AIA, like what were some of the things that you were seeing? What were some of those trends when you were president that you could see across, you know, the building landscape, the architecture landscape that were really exciting about 20 years into the future? So
0: one of the things that I sort of feel like I was there at the right moment, I helped to sort of incubate it. And it came from my experience on being involved in the removal of the Embarcadero Freeway and the city in the aftermath of the Loma Prieta earthquake. So for me, one of the things that has now become more visible and people are paying more attention to it is, the resilience of cities, both in a sort of physical sense and, and an emotional sense. And, you know, you look at what's happening now in California with the wildlife, with I'm sorry, with the, with the fires, you know, all across the state, you begin to understand that natural disasters are sort of an inevitable part of nature. And uh, resilience is really one of those things. On the sustainability front, I sort of always feel that the profession was always looking at what could evolve. And the thing that, again, I saw evolving, and this is now sort of a a much more robust sort of mindset, is the ability for buildings to ultimately be net zero. And having just completed a building for the University of California in Merced that will be net zero, really gives me great confidence that we are, or at least in California, we, are, we have a mindset in order to both look at resilience in terms of our ability to withstand natural disasters or or economic disasters as well as the ability for us to be as sustainable as we can relative to utilization
1: of our resources. As president of the AIA what's so fascinating is that this is an organization that was around since 1857 like you said right so how did it how did it feel looking at such a long history of an organization, such a long history, and kind of saying, what do the next 150 years look like? Like, was that type of conversation being had? And how do you look at things, not just in the immediate, but into the way distant future?
0: So the first thing that you really understand and appreciate is the, as you said, the sort of longevity of the organization. And It started out in its founding amongst 13 architects in making architecture a profession rather than a sort of perhaps maybe more was a hobby for those who were capable of doing. So it became a much more sort of defined profession looking at uh, health and safety and welfare as a result of it. The next sort of thing that you begin to sort of see is the caliber and character of those people who served in this role. At the beginning of the organization, people like Daniel Burnham, Charles McKim, you know, just really legendary architects. And then the sort of third aspect that I see is, or at least I really began to understand probably as I was into my presidency was the importance of being a steward and one who I would use sort of the the, uh, track and field analogy of sort of making sure the baton pass was smooth between those people who preceded you and those who followed you and whether the issues were issues of professional practice, about being a conscience for the architectural profession, dealing with legislation, dealing with issues of equity, you know, a just an inordinate range of subjects that we're just always fascinating that you touched, and you know, and 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 probably most importantly is you really become an ambassador because the organization is probably the largest and likely probably the most premier professional organization in the world amongst architects, and so you begin to see when you travel internationally how the character of those things really make you feel that you are aiding people who are either working the way into the profession, those who are in the profession, and you become the sort of spokesman and hoping you can fulfill the aspirations of an organization that started, you know, 160 years ago it, it, with a, just a very simple and humble focus on just making the profession of architecture more professional in terms of people putting their credentials to create buildings. And we're now in a place where, that's just sort of old history. There's so many big buildings. There's so many projects that that require this sort of what I would describe as sort of design thinking of, of architects. So for me, there's a sort of a lot of lessons that are wrapped up in that. And you you see them going in. You see them while you're doing it. And certainly you see them when you're finished with doing that because you're part of a, a, a small cadre of individuals who have devoted their personal life because you're not being compensated for this is a this is a commitment that you make to your professional organization and so for me there's a sort of really great sort of life lesson in in making that contribution
1: how did you see architecture change while you were there i mean and let's talk a little bit about waste and the rise of prefab and things like that like how and you know we talked to Diane Eisner about who's the former head of growth at Waze, and she was talking about how she was recently at a conference where they were looking at the size of bricks where, you know, the bottom brick is going to be needs to be a certain type of, you know, density or material material. And as you get higher up in the building, there's like each individual brick has different things. I mean, that's just a random example, but the idea that you know how are materials changing? How is the way that architects view waste changing? How does how is speed changing? What were the things that you saw? And obviously, you know, there's tons of thought leadership that comes out of AIA and with the events and conferences and all that. What were kind of some of those leading, cutting edge things that you saw?
0: Probably the interesting thing for me is I served at a time when the economy was sort of in that valley, that economic valley where, you know, we had sort of made a steep rise at a, up to 2008, you know, and so I was sort of in that sort of level valley. But one of the most significant things, and I think now I'm doing more and more reading on it, is the use of, you know, what's commonly called building industry modeling. You, you know, materials are sort of, I'll come back to touch on materials, but, but the way that, parametric modeling or three-dimensional modeling is now done amongst design professionals for me it is just absolutely extraordinary because it really provides a sort of a three-dimensional peek into or at least perspective into what the what the building is going to look like and so you have a much greater sense of what that that is outside of renderings and drawings that might have been much more time-consuming to do so anyway, so that's, for me, one of the big things. And I think a lot of the people sort of coming out of school are much more facile with that. And then the the sort of emergence now, and I don't think the profession is really sort of dealt with in a significant way, but they're beginning to is the the emergence of artificial intelligence in being able to undertake tasks that are perhaps more mundane versus ones that require a much more sophisticated level of thinking. So I think the profession is again going through uh, this sort of change in terms of the the mindset and the training and the skill set on materials. The, the use of materials is certainly far more sophisticated. You know, there's still the sort of basic ingredients of a brick or a concrete block or stuff like that. But we're now beginning to look at more sophisticated models for structural engineering that is, they're associated with buildings. The use of advanced construction techniques in order to utilize different materials. At the end of the day, the, the real sort of fundamental decisions that all architects have to make is the durability of materials, which you really are not interested in seeing is, you know, in a five or 10 or 15 year time frame, the, the use of materials that ultimately don't have a sort of long lifespan. So for me, the materials have evolved, but I think the process in terms of the way the design industry and the construction industry are using my three-dimensional model, see is, is much more sophisticated than it was, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. So I was sort of seeing all those aspects, you know, while I was president and while there were relationships with companies like Autodesk who were advancing the technology and, and encouraging the profession to be able to take up the ability to use that as their as a primary tool.
1: Switching gears a little bit towards the planning side. So how long have you been working with Oakland as part of the planning commission?
0: So uh, probably a little bit more than two years, probably you know 27 months or so. That's been my term currently. And there's a three-year term and then some of the commissioners based on the mayor's desire on the commission are hold terms for typically two, three-year terms for a total of six years.
1: Great. Oh, that's awesome. So I guess going into that role and looking at a city like Oakland, kind of what was your thought process going into the job? How did you see where we were at at like that particular moment in time, you know, 27 months ago? What type of like planning horizons are you looking at? What are the type of projects that you all are looking at? And and kind of just kind of talk through like, what are cities doing to plan for the future?
0: so oakland and you know as a resident oakland has always sort of had this what i would describe as this very sort of eclectic character we had a relationship because it was across the bay with san francisco but san francisco tended to always get the, the limelight it was always a sort of darling of the region and i think for me the Decision or opportunity or experience of serving on the commission, having been before commissions many, 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 many times, it was an opportunity, at least in my mind, based on the encouragement I was hearing from the planning director and the mayor, is that I could provide my day job experience of practicing architecture in helping to elevate the caliber of design the city of Oakland. And I think for, for many, 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 many people, it's sort of one of those things where this is this is Oakland's time. This is our window. You know, we have seen this before. We have not been able to take advantage of it. Trying to create as much housing as we possibly can is obviously a big thing, trying to create an opportunity where there are more jobs in Oakland, both for residents and people in the region. For me, you know, lending my, my skill set in helping to enhance those opportunities, one that, that, that I saw probably just as I was ready to accept the appointment and one that I have certainly seen in the course of the 27 months that I've been a commissioner and some very, very large projects and some very delicate and sensitive projects that may have Significant historic contexts, like you know the likes of the Mountain View Cemetery or the the transformation of Oak Knoll, which was owned by the Army, or even small scale community projects, you know perhaps in East Oakland that were part of a community building thing. So it's a pretty broad range of projects that are from very very large projects to very sort of intimate scale, and that experience of sort of being able to listen to the community, listen to the dialogue, helping to at least on land use side make responsible decisions. I've been very proud in the course of 27 months to be part of being able to do that as a a very long-time resident where I was never really sure where Oakland was going. I, I do feel like it's going in a very good direction and It is struggling with the same problems that every major city is doing, you know, equity, homelessness, scale, you know, enough housing for people who are living or moving into the region, jobs, you know, it's a span of things that that we were talking about earlier that are related to the nature of what cities are. And so Oakland is one of those sort of clearly visible at a national level that is has a lot of those great characteristics and it is not and is trying desperately to hold on to things that make it unique. And I think on the architecture side, you know, this is one of those things that I that I often try and create a mindset on is that, you know, what gets built here hopefully is got some uniqueness to Oakland and its sort of eclecticness or sort of characteristic versus it could be any other city in the world.
1: Yeah, I love the idea of that balance between asking the community for Feedback versus kind of sharing what you think the future should kind of hold. What is the dynamic between? So, you have the city with obviously like the elected officials and, you know, folks that are trying to make obviously the city better in the interim, like right now, right? Seems like planning is focused a little bit farther out into the future, but how do you look at the combination between like the city planning and companies? Yeah, and technologies that are coming into the city and the requirements of what the people are asking for. And the reason that, and it's kind of a convoluted way of asking that, but basically like, I think that one of the drawbacks or one of the issues that we face with planning for the future of cities is there's a lot of knee-jerk reactions to things that happen right now, that there's issues that are happening right now that, Always kind of take priority over the things that are in the long term, right? And I'm curious, like, what you've seen from now being involved with it for a while. Like, how do we allow ourselves to look at time horizons that are far enough out in advance that we can be effective in 10, 20 years? Because I think that some of the cities that we've talked to and some of the folks that we've talked to said that sometimes there's just short sightedness. Like, what, how, you know, and then you have things like, You know, a decade ago, Facebook didn't really exist, right? And now it's this pervasive technology and things like that. I mean, that's on the social side, but now you have, you know, you have Uber and Lyft and Lime and all these uh, transportation technologies. You have new types of buildings that can be made, new materials being made. Some of the speed of that innovation happens so quickly, but ultimately, you know, you're looking at, you know, things like electric buses. We talked to the CEO of Proterra about that. And I think that, all of those different things kind of make a picture that none of that stuff really you could have planned for 10 years ago. We didn't know any of that stuff was coming. So how do you look at things in a long time horizon and say, how do we you know put the needs of the people, needs of the citizens first, but keep a flexible and open mind to be able to be resilient enough that we can add in, we can advance these technologies, we can use the resources that we have, we can seek, you know, outside resources and information. Do you kind of see where I'm going with that?
0: I do. I do. And, I, and, you know, the, the thing that
1: I find just fascinating, I think we are at the epicenter
0: of it is that the emergence of very highly sophisticated technology in the course of the last two decades is a incredible... What probably would be described as a disruptor in the nature of the way cities have evolved over time, and I think you know there there are challenges as an example it's a sort of good story and and sort of problematic story of the the evolution of technology in a region that has always had it but is now sort of accelerated at a pace that. Probably nobody anticipated to your point about you know facebook and uber and 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 scooters and lime and stuff like that and alternative means of transportation so you know what, what what I typically have observed perhaps more in this region than anywhere else is that. Public officials, elected people to offices, either counsel or supervisors, are really much more focused on sort of the current immediate problems. You know, are my streets clean Are you know, is something happening that I can expect you to try and deliver? And the long term planning horizons tend to sort of be high in the sky, or they are not deliverable in the, in the immediate view. You know, one sort of good example uh, that has been sort of bandied around in Oakland is removal of the 980 freeway, very much like the Embarcadero Freeway, which was, it fortunately, damaged by an earthquake and was able to be removed. The, the removal of 980 freeway has got the same mindset. In removing something like that and helping to remove the barriers associated with the neighborhoods that were cut off on either side of it, but that is such a long horizon that requires so much public dollars, it's one that really is hard for elected officials to sort of wrap their head around because they're not they're being asked to solve the immediate current problems. And so I think in in the sort of planning horizon it's really important to sort of look at things that will allow us to be, perhaps the right word, is adaptable, to find ways that we can solve problems in a shorter term horizon. You know, a good example in point is bike share or dockless bikes or scooters or car share or stuff like that or Uber or stuff like that that allow much more sort of immediate solutions to transportation, yet they have sort of helped to precipitate problems that we didn't anticipate. So, uh, you know, and the the other thing that probably is even more significant, having sort of been involved in uh, community planning in San Francisco after the removal of the freeway, is some of those sort of views or some of the the, the momentum for those things started two decades ago. We're now just beginning to see the outcome of them. And they go through multiple economic cycles and the like, but it is sort of important to sort of look at what the use of our scarce land resources are in the region and helping to sort of preserve perhaps the green belts that, that surround the area and helping to intensify uh, development in areas which could accommodate more housing or office, meaning that there's a much better jobs housing balance that could evolve. But But I would say probably the word that sort of comes to mind is for me in the planning is the flexibility to adapt to the sort of unexpected. It's far more predominant now, at least in my mind, in the last 25 years than it has ever been in the course of my career because it was perhaps more predictable before and the timeline horizon for the adaptation was perhaps slower and now it's much, much faster and so that flexibility and adaptability is is much more important now than it has ever been.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's kind of obvious in hindsight is that you have to build for you have to say over time more people will live in the downtown area where there are more jobs, where there are more people. And say that is our thesis, that's our hypothesis is that people are going to continue living in the downtown area, just like you know, has just like in other cities, just like wherever. So, if we are trying to figure out solutions that put more housing and put more parks and put more things that make life better in the dense areas, and then we figure out how to get people into those areas and out of those areas efficiently, right? Very difficult in practice. But the idea of like if that is the hypothesis, it might take twenty years to to realize that. I mean, I think one of the you know, here in the Bay Area, but it's not unlike any city in the world with the idea of mass transit. We're going to talk to MTC about this, but the idea that every city always wants a new BART stop, you know what I mean? Or a new public transit stop. they owe, Everybody wants that, right? and it can't be a decision that is made by who yells the loudest. It needs to be a data-driven decision that shows, hey, this is where we're at right now, you know and some of the things that technologies like when we talked to Diane who's formerly a ways she was saying that you know we have real time pothole updates and we have you know real time traffic updates and all these sort of things and we can share that information with cities and cities can use you know like Oakland has something where you can submit You can submit. Yeah, you can submit. But you can and other things, many other things, which is really cool to use. And I know when we talked to Jed from the city of Detroit, same sort of thing in Detroit. And a lot of cities are adopting types of technologies. But when you look at the amount of data that, you know, Airbnb and Lyft and Uber and Lime and Waze and all these folks have around the cities, I guess, how do you look at that stuff? How do you develop partnerships? How do you seek those type of insights? From non-public partners, and how can you leverage that stuff for making informed decisions for the future?
0: So you hit it right on it, and I would say exactly what you express is the the facility to capture enormous amount of data. I would say on the private sector side is one that is certainly challenging public agencies to sort of. Changed the way they um, used to operate, you know, uh, trips and stuff like that. The the thing for me in the Bay Area that I find fascinating, and you know, it was good as a as, as a ability to move people around through a portion of the region was Bart. But one of the things that Bart was not as facile at doing because it was a a public institution was. Creating more development on in and around their BART stations associated with housing and jobs, and the, the the challenge now is they're just beginning to deal with that. It would have been wonderful to have seen that precipitated 20 years ago, but we often, and this is sort of the nature sometimes of planning, is it becomes a sort of an immediate knee-jerk reaction to a crisis. You know the crisis of we don't have enough housing in the region to house people or the jobs are exploding i think the ratio that i've been heard is there are nine jobs being created for every one unit of housing which is that's not that's not a good measure wow. we are capturing that in in, in in a way that we're going like oh my god it's so bad we, we need to create an emergent situation where we could change that scenario well that stuff takes time i mean buildings don't go up overnight. Even, even your question earlier about manufactured modular housing, I mean, that dialogue has been around for almost 100 years, you know, from its inception at the turn of the century. And we are now just beginning to see use. It probably is not something we'll see likely in high-rise buildings. We'll see it maybe in low-rise and mid-rise buildings. It and they it will, like, will certainly improve the quality of factory-built components, but it won't solve an immediate problem that basically was what you were describing is long-term planning, the ability to move a process through and then be able to have it built. And the sort of, I would say, the, the, the fulcrum in the Bay Area is, you know, we were much more in the last several decades, more of a NIMBY environment. You know, it's now sort of flipped to sort of slightly an edge over NIMBY. But I still think that there are many, many, many communities in the Bay Area who are primarily suburban communities, and people make those decisions by wanting to be there in places because they don't want cities, but... They are now being challenged in locations, you know, Lafayette or, or places like that where they need to create more housing because they are along the public transit line. But it's again, it's one of those personal, personal choices. So I, I just think that, you know, it's it is always a challenge. And, you know, I see this as a commissioner to sort of get out in front of the issue. One of the things that Oakland did over the course of the last four years is do what's known as specific plans plans for larger areas, which basically shortened the time for an environmental review document to create it for a specific project because it was looking at a larger area. And that was a good model. And I think it's helped to jumpstart a lot of projects because it's reduced the uncertainty that developers and project sponsors would undertake in terms of a project that might be appropriate for a particular neighborhood. But I don't see that a lot. And, you know, even the dialogue over the last six months in the state legislature about building denser around transit met with a a lot of sort of people feeling that they didn't like the legislation or it wasn't appropriate for the community, so they... Kick the can down the road, and they basically said, Well, my community doesn't have to participate in, in solving the problem. I'll rely upon the, the much more dense urban areas, the, the likes of Oakland or San Jose or San Francisco, rather than some smaller uh, community associated with it. So, again, it sort of goes back to the, the challenge of how do you jumpstart these things? How do you use the data? And as you said, those tools are ones that people the scooters are a perfect example of. They got dumped on the streets, you know, not 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 more than six months ago. And they are now beginning to be used as a way for people to move around the city in a way that perhaps they had never anticipated before.
1: Let's let's do like a thought exercise on this of if, you know, like you see, I think it was like Shenzhen went from like a 30,000 person city to like a 12 million person city in like 30 years or something like that, right? You've seen examples of this over time where cities like blow up overnight, right? So let's just say like Oakland, you know, Oakland is and Oakland is an, an example of any city of, of this size in the world using it as an example, which I know is reductive, but it's about 400,000 people now. What does it look like? What would need to happen for Oakland to be a million person city or you know 1.2 million basically the size of San Jose in 10 years like what would have to happen because if you're talking about basically it's a 400,000 person city where there's nine jobs being created for every one piece of housing that means we need to get nine times more people like so I guess maybe that's the question right like over the next 10 years how do we get a nine nine times higher population around you know Oakland and the surrounding areas that are near public transit, and near things where people can move?
0: Well, you just hit on it. I think you, uh, which is happening, you look at development along transit so that it's a conduit for people to be able to move around the region without having to get in their cars. And we're all seeing the, the challenge of the amount of cars on the road and the length of time that they, people are taking on their commutes. And so that's the, the sort of primary thing in my mind to I don't want to say get people out of their car permanently, but get them out of their car in ways that they're moving around and is able to do that. I think one of the things that that Oakland, perhaps, and San Francisco is, is a little better, but not much. Is it doesn't have the sort of mass transit infrastructure that really needs to enable like that. And the second is, in my mm-hmm. mind, is the need and the intent to densify the core of the city, which is there now, but in a way that perhaps we don't, we've, we've not seen it in recent times. And we're seeing this happening in San Francisco, probably only as a result of a five or 10 year head start on this, And so this sort of emergence of uh, why I would describe this as sort of overflow from San Francisco, where now perhaps San Francisco used to be the sort of the the center uh, of the sort of visible region, the sort of dumbbell effect of San Francisco and Oakland connected by BART and stuff like that means that Oakland now is much more able to, as a Alternative, you know, and I don't say that in a bad way, as an alternative to intensify itself relative to doing it. So, any growth in the expansion of the city, in order for the city to be more sustainable, more environmentally responsible, getting people out of their cars, allowing them to walk around, using vehicles or transportation that don't require them to be single occupant vehicles, can only occur when the resources are devoted to. The core of the city, and I mean the core in a sort of bigger overall sense. It could it could expand from West Oakland to other areas that are sort of that are in a sort of bigger radius associated with downtown. So People sort of felt that they could take advantage of both services, places to live, and places to work without really having to sort of feel like they have to make it. And, and, and at the end of the day, in my mind, it also I believe it also creates a better living environment, hopefully less stress associated with that. I know there's, there's research about, you know, cities that are very, very dense and, you know, there are some mental health issues about the sort of limits of density. But on the other hand, I think we're, we're not even in the environment where we are dense enough, where that's even something to consider. And so anyway, so that, so for me, that sort of evolution from a city of 100,000 to a city of a million can only occur as a result of the, the maturation of planning and development and buildings in close proximity where there are alternatives to a way you can navigate around to get all the services that you need living in that
1: environment. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, I totally agree. And I think, you know, time time will tell to see how, how those things kind of come together. But I, I think... And San
0: Jose, is, San Jose is, is essentially a suburban city. It's not... I mean, San Francisco in the core is more of an urban city, as is Oakland. And so the challenge is to intensify that stuff where the, all the services are readily available for anyone
1: to be able to take advantage. Well, and I think that that's, I mean, that's the thing that I think is really exciting for cities like Oakland or the resurgence of Detroit or cities like Charlotte or cities like Austin and where you can add density to the core rather than sprawl. I mean, I think we'll see what happens to San San Jose, but I think it's the same sort of thing. Like, could you imagine if we really focus on a dense urban core of San Jose? I mean, that city, I think could change in a major way. You look at even like Sacramento or something like that. I mean, and I think that there's a lot, you know, we talked to, when we talked to Pat Murphy of, of WeWork, he was, he's a Bozeman resident or grew up in around near Bozeman. And he's the same thing with like Bozeman is like, as you develop these urban cores that are dense, that people want to go live and work and walk places and and do that stuff. I mean, I think that that stuff makes it more inviting. And I think that, you know, when it's walkable and fun, generally speaking, we're, we're going to be happier. And I think a lot of people who want to live in cities want that. That's why they want to be there.
0: I also think that it's in some ways a generational change. I think a younger demographic is much more desirous of living in dense urban environments because the ability to be able to not have to be in a car or commute to work for two hours and be able to take advantage of all the the aspects are are sort of a, a very sort of key a key part of that and i and I think that accompanied with the Disruptive and fast pace of technology has both changed the way we are looking at cities relative to their growth. And, you know, as you and I both would would say, in in the last five or 10 years, there's probably been more change in cities than probably people have seen in a very long time. And I think, you know, those are things that both planners need to be cognizant of. And it, it is also a challenge, I would say, for. City planners to push a more radical agenda in terms of transformation because it also requires money. And, you know, Oakland is one of those places where it's trying to use all its financial resources to a wide range of things. When you have a city that's much, much bigger, hypothetically, you have greater access to those resources. And so money's able to sort of facilitate large scale, long term planning things rather than if you're, if you're scrapping for money that would make that change.
1: I guess the final question on that is, I, I guess I just have no idea how things are budgeted, but like are things budgeted like there is a certain current state of affairs, future state of affairs, obviously all of those things are, are lumped together. And I guess we don't need to go into the details of the actual budgeting, but if you were to, if you were a city planner in the U S for example, and you had a radical idea to do something, is that just, I mean, it seems like you you might need to campaign for that for a long time. You need to get buy-in from like the current mayor, obviously, current people, you know, in the state potentially, like how how would you go about campaigning for resources for that change?
0: So two things. One, you're right if you have a... What I would say is a radical concept. You need to be a long-term champion of it, and I think you need to be focused on what it is. I think multiple agendas tend to sort of erode your ability to focus on the one sort of primary thing that you're going that's going to make strategic change. And the other thing that I've seen uh, over a long period of time is that elected officials, you know, may come and go. But I think the more powerful voice is the voice of a diverse and broad-based community participation, you know, whether it's on the business side, on the environmental side, coming together on issues that, that are going to be effective for the particular city in which they are. So, And then the, 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 the answer to your initial question is the money gets lumped altogether, tends, and yet they divide it up. But there's always this sort of demand for the, the challenge of the day, you know, whatever it might be, and it takes away the momentum from the sort of long-term view. And, you know, if you look at, as an example, you look at high-speed rail. It's a century idea. You know, I was, I was saying the other night that, you know, if it's a transit terminal that's now going kind to of open San Francisco, hadn't begun its process a decade ago under the current administration in Washington, D.C., it would have never seen the light of day because there wouldn't have been sufficient dollars. And either they are struggling with it. So I I would say broad-based community involvement in a long-term perspective, consistency in champions, basically pressing that agenda over a long period of time and the ability to stay focused on what that is rather than sort of feeling that there's three or four or five different priorities because several of them are going to drop off because it's not sufficient money. So those for me are what the challenges of the
1: city of the future are. That's great. Okay, so final two questions. This is just like our little mini lightning round here. What's your favorite city?
0: Well, I would say it depends upon the day. I would say San Francisco is just an amazing city. I just absolutely love it. New York has got an incredible vibrancy and sort of internationally cities like Barcelona have an extraordinary character and architectural legacy. So for me, you know, I never sort of pick one. I I love to sort of travel to cities when I I get the chance and I love to sort of see what each of them does. They each have their own sort of ingredients. So I would say I don't have one. I have probably a, a whole laundry list depending on the
1: day and what the characteristic is. Final question here. What are you most excited about for the future of cities?
0: I am excited about the sort of energy that cities create. Um, as As we were sort of saying about the density and the amount of people in cities, the things that you often see is, as we were saying earlier, in very big cities is the diversity and range of populations, people from all over the world. This is sort of melting pot and Having sort of grown up for a big chunk of my life in New York, you begin to see the real difference in the sort of scale of what that diversity is about in terms of culture and stuff like that. So so for me, you know, what you hopefully want to, I don't want to say prevent or avoid, is what you want is that each city is still going to be able to retain its characteristic that people associate with. you know Why is Oakland different than San Jose? Why is Barcelona different than Madrid? Why is Paris different than London? So for me, on a global scale, it's really important that, that cities uh, retain that sort of character that people remember them for whether they're living there, working there, or visiting there.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome uh, getting some insights
0: Thank you to our friends at Katerra. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katerra's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katerra.com or click the link in our... Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.
1: Show notes.